Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 610 with Dr. Tanya Israel. Tanya has some great perspective on how to chat with folks who disagree with you. She even got me thinking again, like, yeah, maybe I should just never bring up politics at work. And she opened my eyes to there may well be some prudent times and places and ways to engage in the conversation such that you're actually both better off and enriched, and it's a risk worth taking under certain occasions. So I was inspired. I think you will be too. You'll learn one, one skill to make difficult conversations more manageable. Two, how to stop seeing disagreement as a threat. And three, the two fears that keep us from actively listening. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, drop on by awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP610. And if you want summary insights from this episode and every episode that's gone before it, check out the Gold Nugget email list, which gives you the summarized three-ish minute read version of each of these interviews. It's called the Gold Nuggets at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Tanya's story. Tanya Israel is a professor of counseling psychology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, raised in Charlottesville, Virginia, and educated at the University of Pennsylvania and Arizona State University. Dr. Israel is known for her work on dialogue across political lines, social justice, and LGBT psychology. Big thanks to Tanya for sharing her wisdom with us. A big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Tanya. Tanya, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thanks. I'm delighted to be here. Well, I'm delighted to have you. And I think the first thing we need to hear about is is your knack for writing not just books like Beyond Your Bubble, but also song lyrics. What's the story here? And can we hear a sample? Well, (laughs) I have a quirky muse and she writes lyrics, but not the melodies. So I have to borrow the melodies from pop songs and show tunes and Christmas carols and all kinds of things. And I am a lyricist, but not a singer. So I'm going to spare you. But if you want to hear my lyrics, I actually just started a podcast with a friend of mine who teaches about Buddhism. And then I write songs about the teachings and a friend of mine who is the voice of an angel sings them. So that's a much better way to hear my lyrics. Oh, that's fun. I remember in college taking a class about Buddhism and it, man, sometimes there was head scratching. It'd be, be a long Sanskrit word like, Tathagata Nagaba is not a something, <laughs> but it's also not not a something. It's like, oh man. So maybe bringing it to song will <laughs> help uh, clarify. 
it's uh, it's really something where the teachings can sometimes be murky, but I can summarize it in a catchy tune. So it's, there's something for everyone. Oh, that's a gift. Well, there's some murky stuff that I want to talk about and get your your insight into. So, so you've got a, a fresh book beyond your bubble. Can you tell us first of all, you know, what's the big idea here? So the big idea is that it's possible to have dialogue across political lines and there are some skills that you can cultivate that are going to help you to do so effectively. Oh, I love it. And, and we love skills here and, and dialoguing across difficult lines, be they political or the silos in organizations or, or just your boss or teammate who just has the complete opposite view of yours, I think is so important. So, but you know better than I, you know, tell me what really do we have to gain if we, you know, really master this skill and what do we have to lose if we don't? Sure. Well, this book all started because after the 2016 election, it was pretty clear that we have some divisions in our country and that we weren't communicating effectively across this divide. And this has been affecting us in terms of our relationships, our family relationships, our relationships with people in our communities, but also in the workplace. And so this is one way that it really can make a difference in terms of work. Employers are actually losing people's time and energy to tension to the political divide and to stress about the divide. So it turns out that people are more stressed now about politics than they have been in the past. And so really, this book is something that I wrote to try to help to remedy this problem uh, so that we can both reduce our stress and also have more effective conversations. Well, that sounds great. And well, I'd love to get your take on this. To to what extent is uh, the stress, the fear real? versus imaginary. My perception is that it's it's kind of real. I saw some startling stats about, I forgot who did it, like the percentage of folks who don't feel comfortable voicing their views, which I think was the majority mm-hmm. uh, politically, as well as the percentage of folks who said they might fire someone if, if they donated to, mm-hmm. the, to the other side, which I found alarming. Mm-hmm. It, it almost made me think, well, maybe the smart professional choice is to not talk about it. What do you think? Well, I think it is some real and it is some overblown in our minds. So there's certainly, there's evidence that the country is more polarized politically than ever in recent history. And there's also a lot of evidence that we dis- our perceptions of people on what we would consider the other side are distorted. So we see that divide as being larger than it is. So if we're imagining somebody who's, you know, on a different political party than we're in, we're imagining the most extreme example of that, that we've seen arguing on TV and that they're the spokespeople for that, and they're super angry. And that's not most people. Most people are are somewhere in between there and that they can also be humanized a little bit so that they're not these stereotypes that we have in our minds. Well, no, I, I think that's dead on when you said distortion. I've, I've got Jonathan Haidt in my ear because I listened to his, mm-hmm. his book, The Righteous Mind, and it, he mm-hmm. said, morality binds and blinds. It binds us into ideological teams that fight each other as though the fate of the world depended on our side winning each battle. And it blinds us to the fact that each team is composed of good people who have something important to say. And, and that powerfully resonated. So if we are distorted, if we are blind, how do we get undistorted and unblind? Well, I think that there are a number of things that we can do. I think the first is just to be curious 
about people who have different views than we have. And so if we recognize that we don't necessarily already know everything about them and and the way they understand things, then it's going to lead us to want to know more. And I asked people, you know, their motivations for Before the book, I had actually created a workshop, a two-hour workshop that was building skills for dialogue. And I would ask people, why why are you coming to the workshop? And there were a couple of things that were the primary motivations. One is that, you know, I have somebody in my life who we have different views politically, but I want to keep that person in my life. And so that was a big one. Some people are like, I just don't understand people who have a different view. Some people want to persuade. Some people want to find common ground. But, you know, these are sort of the the most common things that I heard. That piece of, I just can't understand other people. What I always say is, well, okay, if you have somebody in front of you who could actually help you to understand wouldn't you want to know? Like, wouldn't you want to try to find out more from them rather than just sort of putting your framework on who you think they are and what you think they believe? Yeah, that's well said, is to not just sort of ascribe things to to people. And and so then can you sort of show us maybe how that works in action with that that curiosity? I mean, like, what do you ask? What do you not ask? <laughs> Absolutely. Sure. So like I said, the book focuses on skills, the workshop focuses on skills. So I'll just lay out the skills that seem most important are, first of all, listening. And it's what Stephen Covey calls listening to understand rather than listening to respond. And in my field of psychology, we call it active listening. But it means that when somebody says something that rather than saying a thing back that's contrary to what they've said. Instead, we give them space to say it. And then when we do speak up, what we say is we we reflect what they've just said to us so that we make sure that we understand and they feel heard. So we sort of summarize back what they've said. So that's the key piece in listening. Also, managing our emotions is important. I mean, just even imagining dialogue across political lines, people get so riled up. In fact, people have been telling me that as they're reading my book, it's just decreasing their stress about the idea of having dialogue with somebody. (laughs) I know, which I'm delighted to hear that. So that's fantastic. And then, you know, how do we try to take somebody else's perspective and put ourselves in their shoes? And then when we are going to share our views, how do we do that most effectively? So these are really the the pieces that that I think are important for the puzzle of making things work well. Okay. Well, well, can we talk about each of those skills? How do we do each of those things well? Yeah. So I was I was thinking about this in terms of what does this look like? And in the book, I've got a bunch of examples. Like I've I've got a, a fictional set of cousins who are having conversations about a lot of different things. But but let me just kind of bring an example to you uh, right now. Certainly racial justice is a is in the cultural consciousness. And so this is something that that people are really struggling with in terms of how do we have these conversations. And I thought, all right, well what if you see a friend or a, a coworker wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt. And that's not the perspective you're coming from. So so you could see that and you could say, well, I think all lives matter. So that's one way of responding. Or you can say like, tell me a little bit about 
what you believe. Like, tell me a little bit about why you decided to wear that t-shirt. And the same is also true the other way, you know, that if somebody's wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt and somebody comes up to them and says, well, I think all lives matter, then you can say, well, you know, these are the reasons that I think Black Lives Matter. You can say, oh, tell me why you say that. Like, I'm curious about your perspective and I'd like to hear more. Okay. That sounds simple enough. And so... It's not. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, well, I mean, right. Like the, the words are, are not complex to formulate. You know, I guess it's just sort of like, well, I guess it's what happens next <laughs> where, right. where things get really interesting. Mm -hmm. So I think that the first thing is even to have that initial conversation and ask those questions, it's helpful to have a connection with somebody, that that relationship with another person, if you already have that, and people often do have that with their neighbors and with their coworkers and with their friends and family members, they've got already some kind of connection. And so if you have a sort of trusting relationship, it's easier to delve into that. One of the challenges right now is that there's so much conflict about politics that it's harder for people to feel trusting. So sometimes you have to lay some groundwork in terms of having some positive interactions with somebody, finding some things that you have in common that maybe don't have to do with the conflictual issues. And that makes it easier to start that conversation. But the other thing that comes up is just the emotional level of it, because the things we're talking about are political, but they're really also very personal, that they get to people's experiences and also their deeply held beliefs. And so that can obviously trigger us in terms of our, our emotions. So knowing how to manage our emotions, knowing how to to breathe deeply when you start to feel yourself getting riled up, to notice when you're feeling flushed and your heart's racing, and to know how to actually reduce that stress can be really important in terms of persisting through a difficult conversation. Yeah. Well, tell us, you have your pro tips for how we do just that with the managing of emotions. Absolutely. Well, it turns out that breathing is something that we we all do every day. And that is one of the most helpful things if you find yourself getting flushed and heart racing and, and shallow breathing. Taking some deep breaths can be very helpful to basically what happens when you, when you feel a threat is that your body responds as if that threat is a saber-toothed tiger. And so even if that threat is somebody saying something that you disagree with or that, you know, feels threatening to your beliefs, then your body's going to react in that same way. It's, it's a sympathetic nervous system. And so what we can do to counteract that is we can breathe deeply. We can also do other things physically. We can pay attention to the feeling of the chair under us, of our feet on the ground. Um, you can even touch your own hand to, to soothe yourself a little bit. And those things can actually help somebody to reduce that stress enough to continue on with the conversation. Okay, well, there's, there's much we want to dig into here. So let's talk about that breathing more deeply. Sometimes I'm worried that if I do that, it might come across as a sigh, like, oh boy, here it is. And I don't want to make that impression. So can we breathe deeply on the slide? Or how do we do that? It turns out that because you're always breathing anyway, that mm -hmm. you can still breathe. You can change a little bit of the pattern of your breathing and, and nobody needs to know. It's Alrighty. actually 
The best thing to do is to practice all of these skills when you are not in the middle of one of these conversations. So doing deep breathing, practicing listening just with somebody who you super well get along with is a great thing to do before you practice some of these listening skills with somebody who you feel some conflict with. And and so when it comes to the listening, you know, we mentioned, mm-hmm. we mentioned that we're listening and not to respond, but to understand. Mm-hmm. Are, are there any particular kind of internal cues or prompts or questions or how do you run your brain optimally so that you're listening really well? Mm-hmm. That's a great question. And when I do the workshop, people, I spend about half of the workshop on listening. And people tell me that one of the things that they get out of the workshop is realizing how hard listening is and sometimes what bad listeners they are because they notice how difficult it is for them to just stay attentive to what somebody else is saying rather than what they want to say. So that's really uh, part of it is how do you keep focused on the other person? And if you know that what you're going to need to say when you have a chance to speak is summarizing what they just said, you're going to pay a lot more attention to it. So if you really think, all right, my goal is to be able to listen so that I can say back to them a summary of what they've just said, that's going to help to keep you focused because you're really going to want to try to understand it. I think also if, if you know that you're going to have a chance to speak later, then it can be helpful. So so recognizing that the conversation doesn't have to be, they say what they think, you say what you think, they say what they think, you, you say what you think, that if it's they say what they think, you summarize that back to them. They maybe go a little bit more deeply into what they think. Maybe you ask an open-ended question and you can stay with that for a little while to really make sure you're developing a deeper understanding. And then you can switch. So then you get to talk about your view and what you would want is for them then to be focused on understanding more about your view. So it's doing the same thing for them that you would want them to do for you. Yeah, that's a great perspective there is that there's no obligation. It's not a courtroom, you know, Mm -hmm. for you to put forth your viewpoint. Like, I mean, sometimes maybe you're in the middle of meeting and the decisions are being made that meeting. Okay, yes, we got to hear all the viewpoints. But like, it's totally fine if, if maybe we have a full conversation about Black Lives Matter and then uh, and we just don't get to my view. That's okay. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe we'll, we'll get to it later or maybe they ask and, and it's like, oh, shucks. Well, heck, I only got two minutes. So maybe we'll do this over lunch tomorrow. And I, I think in a way, it's it just almost like a paradigm shift to just sort of be okay putting that aside. Like no, nothing bad will happen if you hear them and they don't hear you. you right. Know? And absolutely. And I'm going to tell you the fears that people have about doing just that because people tell me these things. Okay. So one of the fears is there's a thing that will make all the difference if oh, I yeah. just say it. That <laughs> you think so? <laughs> then they will understand <laughs> things the way that I do and that will change their minds and they will come around to the right view. And that is one of the things that I hear from people that, that they feel like they've just got to say this thing because it's going to make all the difference. And so here's the thing I just want everyone to know. 
it's not going to make a difference. (laughs) (laughs) That amazing thing that you think is going to change everything, if you just can get it out of your mouth, it's really not. And so I think take some of the pressure off of yourself to feel like, oh, you know, I I must say the brilliant, clever, smart, right thing, and it'll change everything because it probably won't. And what has a better chance of changing things is if you actually listen and they feel like you care. And then they'll actually be more interested in what you have to say. So that's one fear, that, that if you don't say that thing, you know, then, then you're missing that opportunity to change the world. The other fear that I've heard from people is actually, what if I listen to their view and what if it actually changes my mind? <laughs> and that's a little scary for people because these are really deeply held views. So I, I came across this literature on something called intellectual humility. And I, th- there's, there's so much richness here because it's really what I, what I think of it is as how to be righteous without being self-righteous. And so being righteous is really about holding on to deeply held values uh, that feel in alignment for you. And, but you don't have to then put down everybody else's views. That's when you get self-righteous, when you feel like mine are the only views that are worthy. And so if you have intellectual humility, you can actually have these deeply held views and be curious about where somebody else is coming from and help them feel humanized and valued, even if you aren't going to change your mind about that issue. Yeah, but there's so much good stuff there. And I'm thinking about that listening in terms of your, your odds of persuading are better if you say very little or even nothing in that mm-hmm. conversation, because there will be another time in which your, your influence and receptivity has grown there by having done that listening. And, and, and I think that's a powerful reframe as well, just right there in terms of by saying less, I will achieve more in, in the influence that I, I seek. And it's fine to have a breath there. I also want to dig into this notion that we perceive a threat like it's a tiger coming at us when it's really mm-hmm. not. I mean, that's kind of the human condition, but how can we establish more of a baseline level of chill <laughs> when, when we go there so that it's this falsehood does not feel real to us? We are not really under attack. It's just another idea that we can try on for a second and see what happens. Absolutely. And I appreciate your sort of talking about the paradox there of listening versus talking and what's most powerful. And it does mean that we have to go into this in a particular emotional state to really be able to hear what somebody else has to say, even if it does feel threatening to our beliefs. And, you know, I hear a lot from people saying, well, it's not just my beliefs. Like, I feel like if that person holds certain views or attitudes about about my group, about the type of person I am, then, you know, it feels threatening on a more existential level, on a more, you know, am I going to be safe here level too. So I think in addition to the physiological ways that we can ground ourselves that help to manage emotions, having a clear understanding of 
those people who are on the other side can be really helpful. And that's where recognizing where we might have distortions and stereotypes of people, I think, can help. So some of those things that we can do cognitively just to recognize that people are not necessarily the extreme that we would think that they are. So I think just knowing that is useful. I think the other piece is that the more we listen, the more we know that. You know, the, the more we really hear somebody, the more we hear their, their humanity and the complexity of their perspectives, and the harder it is to stereotype them. So I think that knowing some things before we go in and then really just paying attention to somebody and being curious can help to make that person less threatening. Well, let's talk about uh, growing the empathy over time then so you get a better understanding of where they're coming from and how they might you know, feel that way or conclude those things. Uh, do you have any additional tips on, on how we can just have the empathy skill be stronger always? So people have a lot of different approaches to building that empathy skill, and a lot of people actually find things in their faith traditions or in, or in the field of psychology. I would say that these are some of the places that people turn to for developing more empathy and more, more compassion. And so I think if you have a faith tradition that, that gives some practice for that, then that's helpful. Uh, we were talking about Buddhism earlier. You know, if you, if you have a loving kindness meditation that you do, if you're Christian, you know, there are some teachings based on the love thy neighbor kind of perspective. Quakers talk about holding people in the light. There are different kinds of things that people do for that that can help them to keep their heart open to other folks. So I think if you already have something that's a tool, and the, the thing I would say with, with that and with any of the skills is that practice is really helpful. So, so always coming back to that and not necessarily thinking that in the first interaction you're going to have with somebody, you will understand them and, and feel that empathy completely. Lovely. Well, I also to zoom in, if, are there any particular phrases or scripts that you just love here? So I'm just wondering if it's sort of tell me more about that, or I'm curious about this, or you know, when did you first believe this? I, I'm just wondering, are, are there any things that you found, boy, again and again and again, they, they tend to open things up and, and be super helpful? Sure. One of the phrases that I like is, I'd love to hear more about that. Mm -hmm. And just leave that open for somebody. What, one of the things that we don't always do well is we don't always allow a question to just be out there and then just for us to stop talking, ask the question and then give them space to respond. Because sometimes we'll ask a question like, I'd like to hear more about that. They don't have a set response to that because it's not what we usually do. We don't usually sort of delve in more deeply. So just putting that out there, I'd, I'd love to hear more about that and then stop. And maybe let's Let's maybe back it up even before words start getting exchanged. And so use the example of a Black Lives Matter t-shirt. Mm -hmm. So so maybe it's that or a, or a redneck America Great Again hat. It, mm -hmm. It's like a, a garment or a something. It mm -hmm. gives you an indicator where someone, what someone thinks about something. Mm -hmm. And uh, you don't care for that <laughs> viewpoint. What do you recommend doing just like internally before we even start a conversation or like, because I think it's quite possible for, you know, the mind to leap to you know, assumption, prejudice, judgment. It could be harsh and it could be unfair and it can be intense. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you recommend we address that in ourselves if that's there? 
Oh, that's a great question. I, I think that it's so important that we start with with what's going on internally for us. I think that the first thing is to notice that, to notice that that's coming up for us, that we're we're making these assumptions about that person. And maybe to start to get curious inside, you know, maybe you see somebody wearing a Make America Great Again hat and you go, huh, I wonder why they made that choice. I wonder, you know, what their experiences are that that led them to want to adopt that perspective. And so I think starting that curiosity internally, asking questions rather than the sort of statements that we might be making to ourselves about that person can be a good start. Yeah. And what's interesting is when you have that curiosity, and maybe this is a little bit too flippant or playful, but I mean, there could be any number of reasons that, that don't even mean uh, they love Donald Trump. <laughs> like they have lice and this is the hat they had available. It was a joke. It was a bet. They're trying to, to develop these skills <laughs> associated with having difficult conversations. They thought this would draw people to them. I mean, none of these are particularly likely, you know, but, but they're all possible. And, and when you have that curiosity as opposed to assumption, it, it seems like it can, it can take a lot of the intensity out of things from the get-go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's true, like, very likely someone's wearing that hat because they believe that, you know, because there's something about that that resonates for them. And don't you want to know what it is? Don't you want to know more about that? And I always think that that's the most curious thing is that people say, well, I just can't understand. But when they're given an opportunity to understand, they shy away from it or not just shy, like like forcefully push away from it. And that's actually probably the thing that I learned most from doing this work is that people have these motivations that bring them to it, to, that bring them to want to have dialogue. But that's not the only want that they have. They want to maintain this relationship, but they also want to vent and they want to feel validated in their own beliefs. And so I think that having multiple wants is really important for us to know about ourselves because if we think, oh, you know, I really want to have this dialogue, but I can't because, you know, the other side is not going to want to have this conversation. That's, I hear that from people a lot. And what I, what I know also is that, ah, people have a lot of reluctance to do it themselves because there's another motivation that they have that either is stronger or at least is in conflict with that desire to do it. And I'm thinking a little bit about defensiveness now. I mean, we, we talked about some of the work we can do internally in terms of being curious and watching yourself and and, and checking, you know, the, the assumptions that you might be leaping to. Are, are there any things, and not sort of being really eager to ensure you put out your viewpoint, do you have any other perspectives on how we can sort of preempt defensiveness? Because it, it, I think some people get defensive quickly and some people are defensive only when it, you know, they think you're really coming after them. So what's the best way to minimize this impact? So it's really helpful to get to know people outside of those, outside of the political conflict. Uh, sometimes there are things we have in common. People can relate a lot to other people who are trying to raise children and in the middle of a pandemic. Like, okay, maybe that's something you have in common. Maybe you both 
coach soccer. Maybe you both like, maybe there are things that you have in common that you can talk about. You don't have to start with the thing that's most conflictual. You can build some connection in other ways. I mean, if you just see a stranger who's wearing a hat or a t-shirt, sure, you might not want to go up and have that conversation with them. And so you can or not do that. But there are people who might be closer into your life and into your community or your workplace. And then maybe you've got an opportunity because maybe you've already got some foundation with them and then you can venture into these conversations. Well, now now let's uh, maybe shift gears a bit away from, you know, explicitly political stuff. So let's say you're working with a a boss or, or or a manager of another department who you kind of infer that, or maybe they've explicitly said that uh, they'd like you or your department to no longer exist, <laughs> like like downsourcing, <laughs> downsizing or outsourcing, or something that also j- just kind of hits you where it counts in terms of, you know, what I have to contribute does not seem valued. Now, that, that may be a fair or unfair uh, characterization, but uh, if you're in that place, you still need to consider their viewpoint and collaborate and get to great decisions together. Are there any additional things that you'd you'd highlight here? Sure. Well, there's a lot wrapped up in that. You know, one is that if there's a power differential between yourself and somebody else, so you're talking about like a manager, that can really affect things because that feels more threatening and it feels like you may not be as comfortable expressing a view or even asking more questions about it. So I think that's that's another piece that we have to take into consideration with with these conversations is like, are there power differentials that are affecting things? Okay, I'm going to get to your question in a moment, but mm-hmm. I, I'll just share that, you know, I, I was uh, listening to one woman who was interested in dialogue and partially because she was trapped in a car with her supervisor driving somewhere and her supervisor was just like going on and on about his political views and not something that she agrees with and she didn't feel like she could get out of it. So I want to speak to the managers for a minute. This is something to know is that you've got a lot of power and Putting somebody in a situation where they've got to hear your perspective can feel really vulnerable for that employee. And so I think really being aware of how that might be affecting people in the workplace is really important. So that's if you're coming from the manager side. And that's, again, about politics. So let me move back to your scenario then. Listening is still really helpful. Somebody says, wow, I don't really know that, you know, we need the kind of work that your department's doing. You can argue back and say, well, yes, you do. But don't you first want to know how they came to that conclusion? Because you're not going to actually be able to make an effective argument to them if you don't Mm -hmm. know how they got there. So, oh, why do you say that? Or I'd love to hear more about that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I'd love to hear more about what a bad job you think I'm doing. (laughs) Right. But really just asking. I'm really interested to know how you got to that conclusion. And then you actually got to be really interested to know. Right. Okay. Thank you. Well, tell me, Tanya, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? 
The one other thing that I'll add, because I talked about listening and reflecting and summarizing what somebody says, and I think that's really important for people to know, is you don't have to actually be able to create in your head a transcript of what somebody has said and say it all back to them. The way I always describe this is what you want to do is you want to nuggetize what they've said. You want to get at the nugget of something really important. And so just know that uh, if you're listening to somebody that's the key thing is like, what's the nugget of what they're saying that's most meaningful and important to them? All right. Thank you. Now, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Sure. Lisa Slavid, who's the fabulous cartoonist of Pea Doodles and also did a drawing for my book. I first heard this from her, with relationship comes grace. So in other words, the stronger our bond with somebody, the more forgiving they are when we stumble. Chew on that for a while. Thank you. <laughs> now, about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I find myself referring a lot to the Hidden Tribe study that grouped people in terms of a lot of different factors related to political beliefs. And this actually helps with that, uh, what, what we were talking about, which is that even though we think most people are at the extremes, they found that most people are in what they call the exhausted majority. <laughs> exhausted majority. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's good. And how about a favorite book? Memoir is my favorite genre, and I just listened to Chanel Miller reading her own story in Know My Name, and it is absolutely stunning. Oh, thank you. And how about a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? I love the Pomodoro method, and something that helped me to write the book was doing Pomodoro with colleagues on Zoom. Mm. So just like accountability there. Not just accountability, but having company in it. So okay. yeah, that, that really helped me to stay on track and get the book written. And a favorite habit? I will sometimes record myself talking about something, and then I've been using Temi to digitally transcribe that, and that also helps me with my writing. Oh, cool. Mm -hmm. And speaking of nuggetizing, uh, do you have a particular resonant nugget that you share that seems to really connect and resonate and get quoted back to you often? So people seem to love this thing that I created that I call the flow chart that will resolve all political conflict in our country. That's quite a claim. <laughs> uh, sounds like there's a lot to love there. Yes, it's it's sort of nuggetizing my book. Okay, where, where do we find that? <laughs> you can find that and all my other stuff on tanyaisrael.com. Oh, cool. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Be curious about people who are different from you. All right, Tanya, this has been fun. I wish you much luck uh, with your book, Beyond Your Bubble, and, and all your interesting conversations. Thank you so much. It's been great to be here. But you know, we've heard that theme a few times now about how curiosity makes a world of difference. And it does in terms of you just want to get a sense for, hey, who are you? What makes you tick? And why is this really resonating for you? Well, how does this connect to your story, your values, your beliefs, where you came from? Where did it come from? You know, like that just changes the whole thing from being super high stakes, like, oh boy, it's all on the line. Don't screw up. Uh, to, huh, this should be kind of interesting. Let's get to the bottom of things here. So we've heard that from a few folks good lesson to key in on. That curiosity changes everything. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to as we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP610. If you haven't already, I recommend you push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. It is Michael Sullivan, and he's got some great perspectives on how to become a 10x talent and deliver exponential value. Hope to catch you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. 
You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers. Subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.